1: The Telegraph. the Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we'll talk about the continuing battle in the Donbass, the fire at Russia's Bransk fuel depot, and the impact of Emmanuel Macron's victory in the French presidential election.
0: This hideous and barbaric venture of Vladimir Putin must end in fate.
2: Nobody's going
3: to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians.
1: Every weekday afternoon, I sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's the 25th of April, day 61. And today, I'm joined by Defence and Security Editor Dominic Nichols, Deputy Foreign Editor Theo Mers, and Mutaz Ahmed from our comment team. I started by asking Dom for the latest updates from the front line.
2: Hi, David. Hi, everybody. It's been a a frustrating weekend, I think, for for all sides. This move into the Donbass from Russian forces hasn't really. Uh, gained any any ground? There's been a a, a lot of a pushing and shoving, basically. So from the north, um, Russian forces have been trying to spread out their resupply lines and the logistic corridors that they're establishing from the russian border down to the east of kiev uh, down into the donbass uh, they've been fairly limited as we saw in the in the north of the country around uh, kiev fairly limited in their in their routes um, not yet got great off-route mobility the ground still isn't good enough for that so they are somewhat limited in their routes but they've also self-limited as again as we saw as we saw in the north so there there has been um, ukraine has tried to push back against this Kharkiv is is still holding, still being shelled, still being hit by long-range missile and artillery strikes. However, there are um, coherent military forces in that area. They've tried to push uh, to the east to cut off these Russian supply lines. They've not really been able to, and they've not really gone into it in the numbers they need. So the military assessment is that they'd need about a brigade's worth of troops with with very large numbers of artillery and support and possibly the same number about a brigade of troops again in reserve if they really wanted to to push out sort of 50, 60 Ks to try and cut off these supply lines. That would be a great risk for them um, because they could easily be uh, encircled and and, and dis, uh, defeated themselves. So there's been no massive effort from brigade in the north, uh, sorry, from Ukraine in the north to um, to cut off those lines. So it's largely been um, Russia trying to inch forward, Ukraine interdicting where they can with uh, fires, but but not an awful lot happening um, in the south. Around uh, the city of Kherson, uh, Russia did try to did try to push out from there, sort of north of Zaporizhia and west of Mykolaiv. But those uh, those attacks were were repulsed, and the and the movement the lines haven't really changed in the south. And similarly in the centre, around Izium and um, in the in sort of main uh, the central part of the of the Donbass, uh, again a number of Russian attacks were were attempted. Uh, they, um, the, la- the latest British Ministry of Defence. Analysis says that they were, they were all repulsed, but none of these were properly joined up um, at anything other than a very tactical level. So we're, we're still not seeing the effect of, um, uh, of, the, of the new, coherent, supposedly coherent Russian uh, command and control infrastructure that's been laid over over this battle. So it's all, all a little bit piecemeal at the moment.
1: Thanks, Dom. Mutaz and Theo, anything to add to that?
2: Well, I, I think
3: Dom has um, said everything that has been happening over the weekend. But the the main thing today and overnight has been, as as you say, a what appears to be a missile strike in on a on a Russian facility in Bransk, uh, just over the the border. It's um, the the building and, and arms depot is on on fire now, uh, and it. It could be a, a strike from uh, the Ukrainian side. We don't know uh, exactly what it is yet, but that, that seems to be the most likely explanation. And it's part of a pattern of attacks or sabotage happening within Russia it's Ukraine going behind enemy lines not just repulsing russian forces in their own country but trying to hamper the invasion by uh, uh, by hitting targets in uh, in russia itself and we've seen that a, f- a few times over the last few weeks um uh, on on depots such as these and also on uh, train tracks in the uh, over the border in Russia that would obviously limit Russia's ability or or hamper Russia's ability to get further troops and supplies into Ukraine so that may be something to watch out for today certainly something to watch out for today and maybe in in the weeks to come Thanks, Theo. I just have a quick question about that
1: because if this is obviously hypothetical, but if it is confirmed that this is a Ukrainian strike, um, what does this? What would this, that tell us about the Ukrainian offensive capacity? And whose weapons would they be using? And is this something that the the Western powers who are arming and funding Ukraine are? I would would be um, encouraging of, or would that with this mark an escalation?
2: Well, I can take that one if you like. I think it's interesting you use the the phrase escalation. There, we'll come back to that in just a moment. But these strikes. As Theo says, there's been a few just recently. April the 1st, there was a strike on the Belgorod oil facility, which we think now, although Ukraine didn't uh, admit liability at the time, we think was conducted by um, MI-24, behind attack helicopters. Then on April the 12th, there was the rail lines. Um, Obviously, we've had the MOSFAR sinking. Uh, the Neptune missiles in the Black Sea. And last week, don't forget, there was the uh, the Central Research Institute of the Russian Aerospace Forces that suddenly went up in flames about 100 miles northwest of Moscow. So there's a number of things happening here. Um, it's unlikely that the, the, the attack in Moscow, and there was also a chemical plant to the east of Moscow that, that provides uh, precursor materials for explosives. That also went up in flames last last Thursday. Unlikely that, these, that those two were Ukrainian strikes. Um, and I think this this Bryansk strike that's still burning actually still burning now, um, probably about 100 k's north of the border, sort of directly north of um, go to the border from from Kharkiv. Keep keep going north about 100 k's. So it's, it, that's that's quite a long way for for an attack helicopter raid, not out of range of missiles. And um, we think Ukraine does have ballistic missiles that's able to able to reach that far. So don't think that would be any Western supplied. Um, weaponry, um, but at the same time, also on, reported this morning, just as the just as those um, those strikes were occurring in in Bryansk, there were two drones, allegedly Ukrainian drones, shot down uh, in the Kursk region. So this is this is between Belgorod and the the Russia-Ukraine border. So so a good sort of 150 k's away from the from the site of the strikes. But it's it's interesting. Um, so Russian state media are saying that they are Ukrainian drones. Now they they might have been um, having to look around for for future future strikes. They may have been some sort of diversion. Um, we were told when the Moskva was hit that there was a there was a, a very obvious drone um, very near the ship, which had, had drawn a lot of the crew's attention, um, possibly aiding in the strike or possibly just a diversion. But all these things together do suggest that the Ukrainian forces are, are are pretty skillful at doing these. Um, Tactical actions; these these either soft raids, special ops forces raids, or air assault or missile strikes. These these raids um, that that do have a, a military utility. They're not just a, they're not just a, sort of an embuggerance as much as the you know you, the Russian forces seem to be just firing artillery around just to, just to, for want of something better to do. Um, so these strikes do they are they do have military utility. They also have great information utility. I mean, just the, the news of these strikes go, plays very well. But has has another effect as well. So there was there was an article in the FT the Financial Times over the weekend saying that actually Putin might have been coming around to the idea that, of of approaching negotiations with a bit more um, a bit more uh, a commitment until the MOSFAR was sunk. So we, we should be careful not to say that these things are escalatory because that sort of puts them into a special bracket. And, and I don't think they are. I mean, this is, this is war. Ukraine has been invaded. Um, you, uh, Russia is conducting strikes across the border into Ukraine. It's entirely legitimate that Ukraine strikes back. And the, the more we allow these types of strikes to be couched in the terms of escalatory, it plays into Putin's hands, I feel. So I don't think we need to use that kind of language. I don't think it's escalatory. I think it's very sensible use of limited resource. Um, it does beg the question, though, where, where this is going, because, as we said last week, if if Ukraine are now doing these attacks to raise the cost of this of this misadventure for Putin, that that's one thing. But you know, these in and of themselves are not going to end the war. So, so you do have to question when 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 positioned for any future negotiations quite what, um, quite how helpful these are. So for example, go, going for oil facilities and logistic facilities north of the border has an, has an immediate uh, impact or very, very rapid impact into the, the battle for the Donbass. Um, some, some other strikes that might be suggested, for example, dropping the, or attacking the Crimea bridge that, that Russia built in 2018, opened in 2018 and, and 2019 for the rail link, uh, linking mainland Russia to Crimea. I mean, that's very totemic. How much military utility that would offer is debatable. How difficult it would be, how much precision-guided ammunition uh, expenditure it would take, um, is debatable. So, got to ask how much is, is worth doing? How much is worth employing to try and um, get these targets? So it's an interesting balance there between Russia's model of just sort of grinding on with its armor and, and firing long-range missiles and artillery that's bringing such misery to the civilian population in Ukraine, um, vice these, uh, the, the effort that, that Ukraine's doing anyway, and then these very, very sophisticated, um, long-range, deep strikes.
1: Thanks, Tom. Mutaz, uh, would you like to come in on this? Add anything to this?
0: Sure. I, I, I think a, a British foreign policy analyst would say it's in everyone's interests that Ukraine denies conducting any of these attacks because, you know, the, the, the you don't want to give uh, Russia justification for conducting direct attacks on, let's say, the presidential palace in Kiev, which, you know, it, it, if, if Putin believes that um, a strike on Russia was ordered by um, Kiev, then then perhaps he, he may see that as, as reason to uh, attempt to decapitate the Ukrainian government which is something we don't want. Uh, the British position is that uh, uh, the British government wants Russia to fail in Ukraine uh, which which is, is an indirect way of saying you know it, it, I, I, the British government wouldn't really condone um, expanding the war to Russia as well. Um, but it, it's deeply embarrassing that a country that claims to be a great power, Russia, <laughs> is 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 experiencing these things. You know, the, the, the it, it it Russia goes around the world telling African nations and 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 um, South American nations and Arab nations. Uh, that it can supply them with the weapons to defend themselves, and yet it's becoming clear that Russia can't defend itself from really a, 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 a medium to small-sized country. That's very embarrassing, and it adds to this sense that the Russian military is is a paper tiger. You know, in, in the first uh, stage of the war, we saw that the, the Russian army had deep logistical problems, uh, but there was this sense when it. When when they withdrew from the the area surrounding Kiev and 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 you know they they regrouped and said they would go into Donbass and focus there. There was this sense that we would see finally this Russian might, you know, this great lion that 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 you know we've been imagining. You know, it would come back. You know, the, the first the the first stage could be written off as just a lack of planning or whatever. But what we see actually is that. Those problems run very deep. This is the same Russian army; they're experiencing the same issues. Um, not much has changed, and and now you're seeing serious military people and, and strategic thinkers, you know, people like Professor Phillips O'Brien, who's a who's a, a, a strategic um, academic, saying that the, the the Russian army may not be able to survive in Donbass. Soon they'll be reliant on conscripts. Uh, their morale is even lower there in, in Donbass than it was in, in the first stage of the war because you're sending the same troops, you know, who who just suffered defeat, you know, they, they've just had to conduct, conduct war crimes. You're sending them back into battle um, without much time to rest. You know, what do you expect? So the Donbass question is still very open um, and and we're seeing really a, a, a military incapable of conducting um, any sort of war or conquest. It's very embarrassing for Russia.
1: Thanks, says Theo and Dom, anything to, to pick up on there?
0: I would
2: direct if, if anybody wishes to sort of have another little read of this, I've written in today's, um, today's Ukraine newsletter about possibly one of the reasons for this, the fact that Russia is just, just not as good as, as they thought they were going to be, let alone anyone else. And it's partly to do with the way uh, Putin's leadership style of of uh, you know, leading by fear, basically, but also he surrounded himself with um, intelligence officers or people from an intelligence background, rather than a broad mix of state, civil society, military, et cetera, et cetera. And there's a very very different attitude to information from from intelligence agencies to uh, to many others. And when we talk about operational security, opsec, it's very much in in the intelligence. Agencies' um, sort of DNA to, to 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 not want to give information out. Um, now, of course, there is opsec, there is operational security. I'm not suggesting that people should just be be carefree with with this information, but but the fact that so much of the Russian military didn't seem to know until a number of hours before the uh, before the invasion that they were actually going to war, and some. There have been reports that some POWs have been picked up, thinking they were still on a training exercise. I mean, this is just extraordinary that, that, that the chain of command didn't didn't allow information to flow um, so freely in in the right so information got to the right place at the right time. And it, I think it just speaks of of this whole uh, chain of command and the way that that Putin sort of surrounded himself with this coterie of not only sort of yes men but 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 people who for whom just just it's, it's they're very reluctant to give any information out. At all I would contrast that with the, the information I don't want to use information space It's a horrible phrase But you know the information environment if you like Because um, yes, environments are completely different to spaces um, Information environment here in the West Which we kind of struck a chord After the Skripal attack in 2018 When the Russian GIU Used nerve agent in, in Salisbury in, in southern England um, Supposedly to try and kill uh, the, uh, Sergei Skripal Who had been a, a KGB agent Defected to the UK and it was deemed after that 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 the that Theresa May's government said that we they needed to get some very very sensitive information into the public domain. And the immediate answer was no, it can't it can't happen. And she said no no no. no, no. Let, let's imagine it's a movie and that we have done it. Now let's go back and read the script and see how it happened. Basically, that's I'm paraphrasing. And and there was some very sensitive information put into the into the public domain. And we see that happening today. So I I get. I get briefed uh, regularly by western officials as you'll read in uh, in the telegraph and elsewhere you know all the all the main media outlets are are invited um and it's up to you the, the reader and the listeners to um to decide whether when dom says a western official said this if it's if it's me making it up if it's somebody i heard on the bus or or if it's a genuine um a genuinely uh, knowledgeable and and a person in the correct position to know what they're talking about. So you know, I I can't make your mind up for you. You've just got to decide that. But I think it's very interesting the way that information is being used um, used here, and uh, Russia has kept it so tight um, that they've not not really been able to get the right information at the right time to the right place. Apart from that, that truthful was well, seemingly that true for hernia a couple of weeks ago, when they when they suddenly said, you know, the main objective is the Donbass all along, um, which I think was extraordinary. If that if that is the case, they used it to cover up the failures in the north. But I think it's extraordinary that that, that a that a military at war, a nation at war, um, suddenly un- unveils what's its it, it, the main objective. So the way information is used is is yeah, is very interesting on both sides, and it's very it does have a, a real effect on the ground.
1: Thank you very much, Dom. Can we talk a little bit now about um, the U.S. Secretary of Defense and Secretary of State who visited Ukraine over the weekend? Uh, why were they there and what was agreed when they were there? Uh, Theo Mutes, maybe you should uh, lead on this.
3: Yeah, um, so uh, Anthony Blinken was in Kiev over the, the weekend and it's the first time with, with the um, U.S. Uh, Secretary of Defense, it's a, the first time that such senior US, US officials or any US officials at all really have been in Ukraine since the start of the conflict. And primarily, it's a show of support. It's like Boris Johnson, um, Ursula von der Leyen, other European leaders going to Ukraine and meeting with Zelensky. While this, this fighting is going on, it shows that he has this broad international coalition that are, are supporting him. And on the, on the practical side the US announced um hundreds of millions uh, more dollars in support for for fighting Russia i think it was 300 million that they announced over the weekend. And they also said that uh, US diplomats would start moving back to Kiev in the coming weeks. They obviously pulled out along with most un- other uh, Western embassy staff in the weeks leading up to the war. And that was a move that was really criticised by Zelensky personally and Ukraine in general, sh- saying that we don't feel like we we do actually have your support if you're... if you 're not there and it was also at, at the time when nobody apart from Western intelligence officials seemed quite sure that this invasion was going to happen so it, it um, the u s and and other embassies were accused of of escalating the situation by pulling it out but moving back it 's obviously a, a good sign for Kiev it shows that it 's getting safer that foreign diplomats uh, Will be there, but also just like Blinken's visit, it's a it's a show of support and a show that uh, Ukraine is still part of the international community in the way that Russia very much isn't. A lot of diplomats from from both sides, from Russia and the West, been expelled in the last few months, and Russia becoming more and more isolated.
0: Yeah, no, I I, I just yeah, I I think that's right. Um, it, it's very symbolic, you know. It, it follows on from. Uh, Italy and the UK announcing that, that their embassies are reopening in, in Kiev. It's it's a symbolic sort of statement that that uh, these countries believe Ukraine has secured its independence. This this was the important thing, uh, I, I think, for many British diplomats. Um, what I heard at the start of the war is that is the most important thing is that Ukraine secures its capital because by securing its capital, it secures its independence. Um, and yes, of course, there's 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 a war rumbling on in the south and in Donbass. But for as long as there's a, a functioning government uh, in Kiev, uh, you've got an independent nation that we can recognise as the West, and so that's very important. But but these visits also serve a, a practical purpose. Uh, the first is that you actually make Kiev safer if you if you have a regular flow of Western officials, Western diplomats, um, um, senior government officials. Um, into the capital, you make you make you make things safer for government officials there, because Vladimir Putin, uh, the Russian military, are a lot less likely to lob uh, uh, bombs over or, or, or to to conduct strikes uh, when there's a risk of of killing a US or British or Italian diplomat. So that's that's one practical purpose. The other is that diplomacy, you know, th- there's a reason diplomats <laughs> prefer to meet in person, which is that you have a different dimension. When it's person to person you can have a greater effect uh, uh, many diplomatic successes have been achieved you know with off-the-cuff conversations pulling someone aside showing someone something you know experiences these things still matter even in this age in diplomacy and so having uh, Blinken there and, and and having Lloyd Austin there that's really important uh for securing more money and and and, and so on so the Ukrainians have done well to attract um these officials. I, I think Zelensky made, made a slight error in announcing the visit before it occurred. I don't think the Americans wanted that to happen for security reasons, uh, but it, it all worked out in the end. And, and yes, there's more support going to Ukraine and, and hopefully more embassies will start moving back into, into Kiev. I, th- I think they think that's, that's really important.
1: Any more thoughts from you, Don on the US visit or shall we move on to talk about the, the French elections?
2: A couple of quickies, if I may, on the, on the US visit. So, um, Secretary Blinken's also confirmed that uh, President Biden is going to nominate Bridget Brink, uh, who's currently the U.S. ambassador to Slovakia, to be the next U.S. ambassador to Ukraine. Um, uh, Bridget Brink is currently, or no, sorry, she's had experience in Uzbekistan uh, and Georgia, um, so she's uh, well well versed in in the region. And um, so a lot of them, a lot of money was announced, and I'd be really interested in, in any of our uh, U.S. Listeners um, or anybody who understands the way that the finance works in the US could get in touch, please. I'm looking at the. I've got the statement here from the, the US Embassy here in here in London, um, uh, talking about the details. Um, and they said that that um, Secretary Blinken also said that 713 million dollars from the foreign military financing for Ukraine and 15 other allied and partner nations in Central and Eastern Europe and the Balkan region will be made available. So that's a lot of money, but suddenly then it's spread a bit more thinly. Um, this includes $650 million in funding provided by the Ukraine Supplemental Appropriations Act. More than 322 million of this of this obligation is for Ukraine and will provide support for the capabilities Ukraine needs as Russia's forces train their focus on the Donbass. So I'm not sure how much of this is new money for Ukraine and whether or not, they don't talk about any specific uh, equ- natures of equipment. Uh, they do talk about some of it will be used to help NATO allies backfill capabilities they've donated to Ukraine. So, you know, I can't quite work out how much, if there's any additional money here uh, for equipment. Although it does say it does say that 165 million dollars has been made available for non-standard ammunition for Ukraine, and I wonder if that's for um, ammunition to, to buy ammunition that is not currently in service with with the US or other or other NATO allies. But like i said so there, there was a bit of sort of number crunching going on there and if there was any any contributors or sorry any any listeners um from from the us who were, who were able to kind of dm us or drop us a line to explain whether or not any of this is is new money and new equipment uh, and quite what it means the um the foreign ministry financing uh in particular i'd be very interested so thanks
1: so let's talk a little bit about the the uh, the French elections. Uh, how did uh, the war in Ukraine war in Ukraine play in the French elections, and what's the impact of Macron's um, Mac- Macron's overwhelming win?
3: Well, the the war in Ukraine did have an impact in it in that. Uh, Macron was uh, was very late into the campaign because he was so uh, focused on the, the shuttle diplomacy with with Putin and Zelensky and and playing a role and playing a role in that. Which when the polls were slightly tightening in the last couple of weeks and it looked like Le Pen might have been in with a very outside chance there was this criticism that he'd been too focused on international affairs and not enough on domestic issues like cost of living uh, crisis and his plans to raise the re- retirement age etc and also the, the war played a, a significant role in that when uh, macron and le pen did come head to head for their their one uh, tv debate ahead of the second round on On Sunday, Macron really laid into Le Pen over her ties to Russia, or what he said were her ties to Russia, because she took this, or her party took this bank loan from a Russian bank, which he said made her beholden to the Putin regime. And that was part of a i wouldn't say it was a, it was a turning point because obviously it was widely known that her party had taken had taken this loan but it was part of his attack on her which uh proved ultimately to be successful and as as we now know he has won the election with a, a wider margin than many of the polls predicted so yes it did play a role and in terms of what is going to happen after the election now that macron has won he may not be quite as involved in the international response to ukraine as he has been and that's because the domestic political this domestic political battle in france isn't quite over yet he's got parliamentary elections Coming up in June, and that will determine who he can have as his prime minister, whether he continues to have a parliamentary majority that allows him to push through the reforms that he says he wants to he wants to get done. And it also it looks like um, parties on uh, on the hard right, like Le Pen, and the radical left, like Jean-Luc Mélenchon, who came third in the presidential election, they're both trying to win seats. So. Um, Macron is, and look likely to, to gain seats so Ma- Macron is going to have this um, domestic political balancing act for at least the next couple of months it's not the case that he's won okay, he can get back to being this this figure on the European and, and world stage um, so th- th- we may not see such a large French involvement though it goes without saying that Ukraine is very pleased that Marine Le Pen didn't win the election. Zelensky spoke out in support of Macron. Um, And opposition figures in Russia, like the jailed opposition leader, Alexei Navalny, also called on French people not to vote for Le Pen uh, again because of these perceived ties to Russia and um, her praise for President Putin in the past. Mutas, what are your thoughts on this?
0: Yeah, just just two things. Um, on, on the U.S., it's good to hear from Dom that that uh, they've um, named um, a candidate uh, to be U.S. ambassador to Ukraine. Uh, but we should remember that, that that there was a vacancy for about two years, I think, uh, for that role. Obviously, the U.S. had representatives in Ukraine, but that that should tell you something about Western complacency. And and you you know you had a new president come in, but still, there, there, there hasn't been a, a U.S. ambassador to Ukraine for two years. Um, uh, and on France, as, as Theo was saying, something very interesting happened during the campaign. During the campaign, we saw Macron's position on Ukraine toughen. It, it, there was a real sort of paradigm shift. You know, you, you started uh, seeing, uh, you know, he stopped. First of all, he stopped calling Putin. He had enough of Putin, this 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 um, language of continued dialogue um, ended, uh, you started seeing French officials releasing intelligence about the activities of Russian mercenaries in, Western, uh, in West Africa, where France has an interest. Um, you know, that, that's something um, they, they, they weren't doing much of before. Uh, and so you saw a shift in, in Paris uh, towards the Anglo-American position, a much tougher line on Ukraine. And crucially, this was a shift away from Berlin. It was a shift away from the German line. Um, And so it was was ironic last night that, uh, you know, people are right that Le Le Pen would have been uh, a a much harder uh, thing for the EU. But last night you saw the beginning of some, or actually of last two weeks, you saw the beginning of some dysfunction in the Franco-German axis in the EU, uh, in that Germany is much more isolated now, much more isolated. Uh, You're you're probably going to see now uh, a, 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 um, a push by the French for an oil embargo, which is something that Schultz has said he's very uncomfortable with. Uh, you may see more weapons being transferred. Uh, and so the EU today, in terms of Ukraine, ironically, is more divided probably uh, than it was before the campaign. Um, and so that that's something to watch out for. Um, uh, the, 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 there is much less agreement now between Macron and Schultz than there was a few weeks ago.
1: Fascinating. Thank you very much, Mutas, and thank you, Theo. Um, Theo, there's an extremely interesting piece on the Telegraph website uh, where we talk to the, the Russian mayor of
3: Dnipro who has a British-made rocket launcher in his private bar. Can you tell us about tell that? tell us about that? Oh, yes. Um, this is a great dispatch from one of our correspondents who's there at the moment, Campbell McDermott. And um, it's, the, yeah, it's the, the mayor of Dnipro, uh, Dnipro, sorry, Um who, as Cam says in his in his piece, is is a Russian speaker. Is this sort of very gruff, um, not to uh, not not in an unflattering way, but a bit of a, a Soviet hangover, perhaps. And he seems like the sort of person when you meet him that would exact exactly be the, the kind of the kind of politician in Ukraine who would naturally support Putin. And naturally, all at least naturally be be closer to Russia and closer to a, a Russian mentality than a Western mentality. But the 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 war has obviously completely changed this and really pushed him um, pushed him to towards the West. And he was talking about um, his uh, support for. That he, even though he grew up in the uh, Russian in uh, Russian-speaking environment, and his his wife is Russian, I think he um, he now feels very culturally Western. And he was talking about his supports for LGBT rights, which is obviously something that the Russia and um, the West uh, uh, diverge on. Um, So it's it's interesting. It's it's something that we've been talking about throughout the war, but it's a really good sort of personal illustration of how uh, Putin has entirely alienated people who might otherwise be seen as as pro-Russian and how there's not going to be a, a natural Russian support base, even if uh, he does succeed in taking the parts of the the Donbass that he apparently wants to now. Thank you very much, uh, Theo.
1: I would recommend everybody go to the Telegraph website and read that piece. It's hugely interesting. Um, quickly, before we finish, uh, in, one, in, my, in my notes I've written... Um, a piece of news that came in on blog about how Russia says they see no risks in Moldova's breakaway region of Transnistria and wants a peaceful settlement of the situation there. This comes after Rustam Minakayev, the deputy commander of Russia's Central Military District, was quoted by Russian state news agencies as saying full control over southern Ukraine would give it access to Transnistria. I thought this was interesting because this goes back to Russia's revised war aims. And I realised we haven't actually spoken... About what exactly Transnistria is, can we talk a little bit about that, please?
3: I'd better. Uh, I better. I better take this. Um, I, I haven't uh, revised its exact status, but it is a breakaway region of Moldova that is um, that is um, that is officially part of Moldova. But is is one of these territories in the in the former Soviet Union that um, has a ambiguous status? It's got its its own currency. It's it's hard to travel to. It's a bit. A bit I've heard from people who've been there that it's a bit of a a Soviet uh, time warp when you when you do actually go there. And there was some suggestion at the start of the war, or sort of in the, in the first few weeks of the war, that Russia might extend its action in Ukraine to um, take this region from Moldova this um, that has this am- ambiguous frozen status at the moment and then in the last few weeks we haven't heard so much about it but um, as you say these, these comments over the weekend um, raised raise the possibility that, that Russia might be moving into Moldova again so that's possibly something to watch out for.
2: All I'll add to that is uh, we, we should always bear in mind uh, Russia, Russian communications, strategic communications, generally come out of one of three pots, and it's divert, deny, or discredit um, if they don't like what's what's happening or uh, or, or wish to uh, make you look at look at look at the shiny thing over there rather than what's happening uh, over here. And I think this one comes out of the purely you know, straight out of the divert pot. Uh, I mean, we, you know, we, we've not we've not heard about. Uh, Russian f- fears for r- Russian-speaking population in Moldova for well for pretty much up to now in this war and yet suddenly it, it now is now sort of verging on a war aim and we should all get I mean just, it, it, this is a side order I mean, do look into it so, so that we're aware of the of the issues and we're better armed for, for when these uh, these arguments come out but I wouldn't worry t- about spending too much of all, everyone's busy days um, looking at this this is this is straight out of the of the divert pot of Russian strategic communications.
1: Thanks, Tom. Um, well, I think our time together here is probably up. Can we just talk a little bit each of you for your? Can I ask you for your final thoughts and what should we be looking for uh, this week?
2: Last one for me would be to keep an eye on uh, uh, Anthony Blinken and Lloyd Austin's uh, visit uh, from Ukraine. They're, they're coming back. They're, um, they're going to be stopping off um, at a, a location in Europe, uh, which I've been invited to tomorrow. Um and they're going to talk at this defence consultative meeting. They're going to talk about um, aid, uh, increased aid for, for Ukraine and the, and the next steps. Uh, and interestingly, they're going to be talking about the, the longer term national security interests. Um, so, so not only interesting that it's happening, uh, but interesting that the, that the vision is, is being pushed out from, from the immediate equipment requirements onto the sort of longer term politics. But um, I'll be able to, if I can't dial in tomorrow from where we are, um, certainly, I'll get get a report up, and, uh, and we'll be able to chat about it uh, on Wednesday.
3: And um, I think one of the things to look out for is uh, attacks on the the south of Ukraine and civilian areas. Obviously, one of the stories we saw from the weekend was the uh, missile strikes on residential apartment blocks in Odessa. A, a woman killed along with her three month old her three month old baby, which. It was an awful human story from the conflict but sadly not so not so uncommon and i think there that may be a, a flashpoint in terms of in terms of fighting in the days to come amutas would you like the final words
0: sure um i'll i'll be watching uh, uh, as you said the south as well uh, odessa um if you'd like to know why why that particular city is so important uh in terms of access to the black sea and so on um, and its historical importance, go and read David Abilafia on the Telegraph. Um, and frankly, if, if Russia is able to build a corridor in southern Ukraine, the truth is that that breakaway region of Moldova becomes low, low-hanging low fruit. Um, um, uh, they, they, they'd have very easy access to it. Um, um, and the second thing I'd watch is Macron and Schultz. You know, uh, Schultz was the first person Macron called after winning last night. Of course he was. And these two, I think, over the coming two weeks or so, are going to hammer out Europe's position, or or at least, or, or at least the, the Franco-German um, position, uh, because as we've seen with Poland and so on, um, the, the EU is no longer united on on Ukraine. But they're they're going to hammer out what what Berlin and Paris think on or, or in terms of um, how this war should go and 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 how Europe should respond. And that's going to be a very important sort of strategic moment. So I'd watch out for that.
1: Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first 30 days completely free at telegraph.co.uk forward slash audio. Or sign up to Dispatches, our Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. Today, Ukraine The Latest was produced by Louisa Wells and Giles Gear, And on Twitter, Alice Hearing.